This is John Haltzman, and have a great Monday. Welcome to the Foreign Policy Blog, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new world that we find ourselves in. And today we're going to look at an area where my firm has, to my great pride and joy, led the way, and that's reappraising China. For too long, we've seen China in the West as an unstoppable hundred-foot man who's destined to rule the world. And in fact, there were books with that very title. Um, and one of the things that goes wrong in political risk is that we spend an awful lot of time critiquing ourselves, rightly. What's wrong with our society? What's wrong with the West? As you know, I devote the entire Patrick Henry column to discussing what's wrong with the West in forensic detail. And there's no doubt that the West is in relative decline, that the many, many problems of the West have ganged up to limit its power, certainly compared to the period after 1945 when the United States dominated the world. But implicit in this decline of the West argument, and people have accused us of being Spenglerian, named after Oswald Spengler, who said the West was coming to an end in the early 20th century, only to have it rise and rise again. Uh, while we've been accused of this and have been right about its decline, the assumption is that China is the rising power that will either supplant the United States or come to co-rule the world. In the words of the wrong Neil Ferguson, Chimerica will run the world. And this was the big mistake behind the idea of globalization, that these two powers, united by doing well together, would somehow reach an accommodation and run a relatively peaceful world. And Mr. Ferguson, always worth listening to, often interesting, but always but if always interesting, is also often wrong. And in this case, he was wrong. They weren't going to be together. And in fact, they were going to be at loggerheads. And when this went, when we moved from Chimerica, this idea of Ferguson's, that America was declining, China was rising, and that they would reach some sort of accommodation based on being part of the shared integrated system of globalization, that then gave way to an even darker idea, which is the great Graham Allison's idea of the Thucydides trap. Thucydides was, of course, the first great Greek historian who chronicled uh, Athens and Sparta, the Peloponnesian War, as his masterpiece. And he posited Thucydides the notion that if you have an established power, in this case Sparta, and a rising power, Athens, more often than not, they're going to go into conflict. And Allison took this idea and ran with it. In the last 500 years, there have been 16 examples of a great established superpower and a rising superpower. And in 12 of those 16 times, there was a war. And so the sober news here was that an established America running into a rising China was likely to lead to war and that the rising power had an edge, in this case, China had an edge. So rather than China being co-opted by America, as Ferguson posited, with China rising and America in decline, Allison said, yes, America's in decline, China's rising, but there's likely to be a war out of this, and implicitly China has a good chance of winning that war. And that has been the established view for a while now, until about a year ago, when Hal Brands and Michael Beckley wrote a piece about China. Maybe it isn't rising anymore. Maybe that's wrong, that yes, the West is in decline, but maybe China's also in decline. And along with Brands and Beckley, I'm delighted to say our firm, very early on, started thinking through this because I wasn't convinced that the truism of China being a rising power was true. The more I looked at China, the more I saw it on its own. I think we forgot that they also had problems. And while we were obsessed by our own, often we see our enemy as not having as many as perhaps it does. 
And this new idea that Brands and Beckley and that I put forward was that China is a peaking power, that the danger in China is that it's similar historically to a position of, say, the Kaiser's Germany in 1914, when Russia was relatively gaining on Germany. Germany had been gaining on the dominant superpower, the British Empire, for 30 years before that, since unification in 1870-71. It had been rising relative to Britain, which was the established superpower, and people thought that you know it might overtake it, and then a number of things began to go wrong for Germany. Among them, the Kaiser's boisterous foreign policy alarmed the horses, and an entente was created to challenge them with Britain, the established power, France, a great power, and rising power, Russia. And so the Kaiser's military staff came to him in 1913-14 and said, look, we either have to use it or lose it, that Russia is growing at a far greater rate than we are from a lower base, but that the Stolypin reforms began in the 19-aughts might make Russia the next big thing, and that we have a very limited window to cement our position as the dominant power in Europe, and that this impetus helped lead to World War I. In the same way, Imperial Japan was a peaking power. If you look at Imperial Japan, it grew in the 1920s at a rate of 6.1%, but in the 1930s at a rate of 1.6%. So it went from being the next big thing to a sclerotic power. And again, as it began its war in the early 1930s, after the Marco, Marco Polo Bridge incident in China, after it began to fight there, it and, and, and an oil embargo was called by the Americans, Either the Japanese had to humiliatingly retreat in China, which would lead to the fall of the military-dominated government, or they had to double down, and they doubled down with Pearl Harbor. And so in each case, it, it's precisely the weakness of the expansionistic power that leads it to act. And so the peaking powers, um, we don't get to go home and say, well, they're in decline. The danger is that they have a limited window to move forward or they settle back to a relative decline and in both the case of the Kaiser and Imperial Japan, they chose to roll the dice, leading the world to a great world war. And so it isn't great news that China is necessarily a peaking power. But if you're going to be a structural realist, if you're going to do political risk, you have to see the world as it is, warts and all. So we've gone from Allison, U.S. declining, China rising in accommodation. Sorry, we've gone from Ferguson, U.S. declining, China rising accommodation to Allison, U.S. declining China rising war to Brands, Beckley and Hulsman, which is U.S. declining, China declining. And that's precisely the problem. Why do I think China is in decline? Let's just have a look at a number of recent events, and I'll just pick six that show that China isn't rising, that far from that, it's in decline. First, the curious case of the mortgage strike that in China, the construction industry, which amounts to one property, amounts to one third of China's GDP. It's a gigantic portion of their wherewithal. And China right now has 65 million empty apartments as of this morning. And what's happening is that you pay a mortgage before the property in China is completed. Mortgages are relatively new to the Chinese system, but have taken over in the last couple of years. So you're paying a mortgage before the building that you have is even completed. And with the mortgage industry becoming incredibly shaky, many of the people paying for these uncompleted buildings are fearful they never will be completed and that the money will end up in the pockets of these corrupt and desperate property developers. And so without a completed property, thousands of people 
have gone on strike. They've simply stopped paying their mortgage. If they don't pay their mortgage, the property developers don't get any money and the shaky Chinese banking system doesn't get any money. It's very hard for the Communist Party to control this because it started at the individual level. The organization was on what things like WhatsApp, Weibo, the Chinese version, and on the Internet. And there have been protests about this, but mainly it's been organized locally. And these thousands, if not tens of thousands of people not paying their mortgages is exactly the opposite of what this shaky industry, which amounts to one third of China's GDP needs. And this bears watching because it's hard to see how the Chinese Communist Party can actually stop a mortgage strike. And that's what we have going on right now. The second thing that's happened in just the last couple of weeks that that a small incident that, that illuminates a larger problem is the government has sent thugs around to break up protests by depositors demanding their money back at a series of failed regional banks. Again, corruption, and when people demand their money back, they're beaten up by government-sponsored thugs. Well, this is bad for business in two ways. First, these banks going under, again, puts a strain and, and, and a spotlight on China's very weak very unregulated banking system. And we haven't even talked about the shadow banking system yet, which has taken on debts we simply don't know the magnitude of, except that they're very high. And second, to beat people up who want their money back, who were part of the system, is generally bad for business. So again, this illuminates a larger problem. Um, the third area, and we've talked about it a lot before, and it was part of my major argument for why it's not a rising power, because I come at things geopolitically, because I'm a political risk analyst, um, geopolitically, Xi has scared the horses, that what he's done is in line with what the Kaiser did in a, from about 1900 to 1914. By being bellicose, he's actually rallied the forces against him. It's the law of unintended consequences. By stamping out democracy in Hong Kong and beating up his students and abrogating the deal with the British, where he talked about one country, two systems, that's now out the window and Hong Kong has been kept firmly to heel but they're killing the goose that laid the golden egg, and it's now going to be just another Chinese city. But that smashing was certainly noticed by Taiwan, so they can't expect some sort of two-system deal with the Chinese. And this was in front of everyone, them beating up their students and destroying democracy because they can't bear it. Second, their near-genocidal treatment of the Uyghurs is now common knowledge to everyone in western China and Xinjiang province. Uh, third, they fought a actual war along the line of actual control in the high Himalaya with India, where like a Graham Greene novel or a Kipling novel, people were thrown off of cliffs and beaten to death with barbed wire tied around bats. The Chinese have advanced and taken a hundred or so square miles of Indian land. But of course, this has alerted the great power that China is not a country to be trusted. At the same time, the Chinese have bullied the rest of the world by ignoring the fact that they lost an international ruling where they claimed six-sevenths of the South China Sea based on the nine-dash line. This was seen to be utter rubbish, and the Chinese simply said, we're going to ignore the ruling in The Hague and do as we please. Fifth, the, the, in this uh, cornucopia of mistakes, Xi has, unlike Deng Xiaoping, who was all about softly, softly, has... Uh, led to a trade embargo on Australia for having the temerity to say that maybe COVID um, was propagated by the Chinese, that although they didn't create the virus, once it was loose, they were determined the rest of the world might get ill. And the, and the Australians demanding answers to why China, for instance, left international flights open while they closed down Wuhan, a pretty good sign of guilt 
Again, they left international flights open, but closed Wuhan province. They knew something was wrong, but said the rest of the world can catch a cold. Rather than investigate us, the Chinese predictably were hysterical and started a trade war with Australia for having the temerity to ask, not the sign of an innocent person. And let's not underrate the China giving the rest of the world COVID and covering up their depraved indifference, as Jack McCoy would say in Law and Order, this is manslaughter, and them covering that up, although not discussed, is something everybody knows. China is simply not a responsible stakeholder. So for all these reasons, Xinjiang province and abuses there, starting a quasi-war on the border with India, bullying the Australians for having the temerity to ask about the origins of COVID, ignoring the ruling of the South China Sea, perpetually bullying Taiwan, and sending more and more overflights of Taiwan and telling who can go there and that eventually Taiwan would be integrated with China, peacefully or not, come what may. All these things added together have, of course, led these powers to unite around the United States. Much has happened when the Kaiser bullied the rest of the world, only to see the Entente form of rising power Russia, established superpower Brit the British Empire, and great power France. The same thing happened. We have the Quad now. Established superpower America, rising power India. We have also Anglosphere country Australia and great power Japan. Exactly who you'd want in a loose strategic alliance, which whatever they say is designed to counter Chinese expansionism. The Chinese are right about that. Of course, that's what it's for. I certainly hope so. Also, the AUKUS defense pact, the Anglosphere, comes roaring back with a nuclear sub-deal between Anglosphere country Britain, Anglosphere country Australia, and Anglosphere America, having a defense pact where Australia now is an aircraft carrier for the United States in the middle of the Pacific. Quite important indeed. Um, fourth, Xi has continued with his insane zero COVID policy, uh, which allows for lockdowns at the drop of a hat. For instance, over the last week in Wuhan, one million people were locked down in Wuhan province again for four, you heard me right, four cases of COVID. This is economically ruinous. He thinks he can, in an authoritarian way, stamp out disease entirely and doesn't care what that does to the economy. The Chinese economy already slowing naturally because it's no longer in the catch-up growth phase certainly does not need this. Fifth, and this is the other one along with geopolitics that struck my eye and led me to posit the idea of peaking powers a little over a year ago. China's going to get old before it gets rich, and we've talked about this before. There are many ways to look at this, but the ruinous one-child po one policy that was in effect for 40 years, uh, designed in the 1970s to stop population explosion, which if we'd gone to conferences then would, be, would have been wrongly what people talked about, now has been a nightmare for the Chinese. Again, only an authoritarian government would be stupid enough to think you can control procreation and matters of the heart. And boy, it's, it's bounced back in their faces. By mid-century, by 2050, as many as one-third of Chinese will be 65 or older. One-third of the population will be over 65. And let's remember, China does not have the retirement system that we have here in the West. And so who's going to pay for all these old people who are unproductive and not working? There aren't enough workers to pay for this. This isn't the sign of a confident, established power that's going on from strength to strength to rule the world. Rather, this is the, this is the signification of a declining power. One third of its people will be over 65. It's hard to rule the world when that's your demography. The problem is China's going to get old 
before it gets rich. And this has been on the cards for a long time. They've done away with the one China policy, and now we're encouraging people to ironically have three children. But women, having been gotten used to their freedom, are not about to give it up. And it's very hard to turn demography around. Certainly, it's not something you do quickly. It takes a generation to do, and there's no sign of this happening. Rather, Chinese demography and their numbers here are highly suspect, as, it, as most of the Chinese numbers are, says it's at 1.45, which is well below the replacement of 2.1. The real number is probably closer to 1.2 children per couple, which is in line with Portugal, Spain, and Italy after they discovered the pill a generation ago. These are not numbers to change anything. Rather, they're going to make the demography worse so China's going to get old before it gets rich. And this is, this is their last kind of damning point. So when you add this up, you have a mortgage strike pointing out the weakness of the property realm, which amounts to one third of China's GDP. You have government breaking up protesters when their deposits go away after a series of failed regional banks and corruption. Geopolitically, Xi, unlike Deng Xiaoping, has scared the horses, uniting the rest of the Indo-Pacific against him. He has a ruinous zero COVID policy that's messing with the Chinese economy. And he's covered up COVID, which everyone's aware of. And China's going to get old before it gets rich. That would be my case as to why this is far from a rising power and that we see them as being 10 foot tall when really like the Wizard of Oz, they're a good deal smaller. But this doesn't mean I'm laughing at the Chinese. Rather, this means we're entering a period in political risk of great danger. Xi has the 20th party conference this October, where he hopes to, in essence, be anointed president for life, undoing Deng Xiaoping's wonderful reforms and going back to the horrible Mao system of one man, one country, one rule, a pure dictatorship. And so there has been some opposition. I think a lot of this is wishful thinking, but there's been some opposition to Xi. It, it's certainly we're going to be watching the 20th party conference in October like a hawk to see what happens. But the outcome of this is that she's going to do nothing between now and then in the next few months to scare anyone because he wants to anoint himself for the long term. But come next year, you're going to enter a period of about five years where China has to, as the Kaiser did, either use his burgeoning military or lose it. And this is specifically around Taiwan. We've talked before. There are only three ways for China to break out of the island chain trap that surrounds it and dominate the Indo-Pacific. It's near abroad, which is dominated now by the United States. It can either go overland, but there have been these huge problems with Belt and Road we've talked about. It can go to the south through the Strait of Malacca, but they simply would have to fight their way through too many navies, the United States, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, India, Australia, too many countries in the way. So he'll go north to try to break out, and that's dominate Taiwan, where you would only have to fight, in theory, the very weak Taiwanese military, Japan, if we're lucky, and the United States. And so everything is about Taiwan. It's the new Berlin of our new Cold War. And China has a five or to seven year window, given these problems, to use this military or lose it. They will then be unable. Demography will continue apace. The quad will grow. AUKUS will grow. The world has woken up through COVID to China not being a responsible stakeholder. So the period of maximum political risk danger is now. China isn't a rising power, and that's precisely the problem. The next five to seven years in the Indo-Pacific will be hair-raising. Remember, all the risk and all the reward in the world are in the Indo-Pacific, the area of greatest economic growth and greatest geostrategic peril. 
because the Sino-American Cold War is the defining strategic competition of our day. But rather, as Ferguson saw, China being a rising power and the United States a declining one, or as Allison saw, the same, but war being the outcome, I think both are in relative decline. And seeing that correctly is the first step to mastering China. But the problem isn't that it's rising, it's that it's peaking. Hope you enjoyed this. It was good to get this foreign policy blog out there. First thing on a Monday, uh, we will continue along with the week. Please do subscribe. So many of you have, and we're, we're thrilled. Our community grows and grows and grows, and we spend more and more time doing this, which I love, and so many of you in the community are enthusiastic about. Thank you for your steadfast support. For those of you who haven't subscribed, do so now. And for those of you who have, please do give. We're asking only $70 a year, $7 a month for $70 a year, the price of my precious espresso, which I've just downed for the price of an espresso a month. We can give you the foreign policy blog on Monday, the culture section on Tuesday. We're going through albums you have to listen to before you die this summer, before we go back to some literature. We're going to look next at one of some of the British albums I love, particularly the Zombies, Odyssey and Oracle is tomorrow, and then the Pink Floyd with the great Sid Barrett to follow. Wednesday is our flagship around the world in 20 minutes. Thursday, we look at the society with J.L. Ryder. Friday, we look at the economics with Publius. So we are a full service newspaper to the world for the price of an espresso. Please do give the $70 and on we go. Hope you enjoyed this one. I thought it was an important way to start the Monday. Have a great week.